Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Episode 15, You Can't Afford the Ticket Back to Cannibal City. This week on the podcast, we're doing a shorter bonus episode as we round out our first season of the show. Travis and I have decided to do a couple of shorter episodes at the tail end of this season uh, that take their subject matter from interesting or influential texts of apocryphal Christian scripture. Apocrypha means hidden away, separated, and out of sight from the established biblical canon. And more on that later. But this episode centers on one of these apocryphal texts with a memorable title, The Acts of Andrew and Matthias in the City of the Cannibals. We're offering these episodes as a fun way to round out what we consider to be the first season of the podcast. The way we did this originally was to put together six episodes at the start that communicated some of the big themes that drew us to the subject matter in the first place, like dualism, demonization, possession, and temptation. We began doing this podcast in a historical moment when the idea of cosmic evil had re-entered the mainstream of public discourse in some new and startling ways. There's been the liberal political resistance against the dark side of the force presidency, number 45, and all his enablers, the evil empire, I guess. And most disconcertingly, a new online conspiracy theory, QAnon, has emerged as a millenarian apocalyptic movement that sees Trump in messianic or quasi-messianic terms as the leader who will rid the world of the deep state slash globalist, globalists often code for Jewish, cabal of Satan-worshipping child abusers, as I'm sure you all know. They will all be interred in the extrajudicial carceral zone of Guantanamo Bay Prison, a secular translation for hell if there ever was one. It's striking how one of the things that the citizens of the USA and their political representatives should feel the greatest shame over is this extrajudicial hell on earth, which has now been morphed into a space designed to contain the social and moral pollution that has been ejected in a righteous purge. Funny how that works. Historian David Frankfurter, investigating this idea of evil incarnate that animates so many conspiracy theories and witch hunts across historical and geographical contexts, writes that, quote, it was the myth of evil conspiracy that mobilized people in large numbers to astounding acts of brutality. The real atrocities of history seem to take place not in the perverse ceremonies of some evil cult, but rather in the course of purging such cults from the world. Real evil happens when people speak of evil. There's a paradox there. Should we even still be talking about evil if that very concept is what animates so much violence and harm? There is an analogous debate among anti-racist activists and the broader left about how to respond to the attempted coup or insurrection of January the 6th? Does labeling the participants in that coup as terrorists and criminals simply play into the discourse of criminalization and mass surveillance we want to push back against? And at the same time, what other words do we have when confronted by the eliminationist, white supremacist right wing? 
or the human frailty, credulity, and giddy delirium for scapegoats that the past weeks and months have dragged under the spotlight. Stories about the devil, about evil incarnate, seem perennial, or at least robustly reoccurring. It is, after all, a Satanist cabal that is supposedly the cause of all of our troubles. I don't pretend that studying the history of the devil will be this disenchanting, enlightening anecdote to the poison of conspiracy theories. But I do hold out some hope that some of the narrative patterns and genealogies of demonization we discuss will provide a broader, deeper context. A prime example for me is looking into the Satanist abuse panic of the 1980s and 90s while researching the Halloween episodes from October. You go back and you think about those for a second, and you realize some prime features of the QAnon mythology have been a major presence in recent history, especially on the right wing of white Christianity. With the way our media consumption works, perspective can be elusive. So there is an urgency to this material that is pushing us to think about the devil's long life in various cultures, stories, and intellectual systems from antiquity to the present. We went from discussing the big themes to getting into the nitty gritty. One of the creative tensions in this process is the desire to speak to what we see going on while providing some semblance of what makes history podcasts fun. The story that chains together a large chunk of episodes and gives the listener the sense of going on a journey. So sometimes we'll stick to the story, and sometimes we'll come up for air and talk about what's going on around us here in the U.S. in the 21st century. As you know, we've recorded some episodes that explored pre-Christian origins of the devil, looking particularly at roots in the Hebrew Bible, the Second Temple period of ancient Judaism, the possible Zoroastrian Iranian influence, and then getting into the canonical texts of the New Testament. Today, I want to start off by talking about what's canonical and what isn't. Canon means rule in Greek, and to be canonical is to measure up to a rule of faith or doctrine. But whose rule matters? Scholar of ancient Christianity, Bart Ehrman, discusses power struggles between different Christian groups and one of those groups he dubs the Proto-Orthodox, going on between the 1st and 5th centuries of the Common Era. Orthodox doesn't mean Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, but rather pertains to a set of doctrinal positions that were undergoing development and would come to dominate Christian discourses. And I'm talking about things like the Trinity and the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, the ideas of incarnation, so on and so forth. So there were all kinds of scriptures floating around the late ancient Mediterranean world, and scholars estimate that we have only about a tenth of what that total textual production would have been. A lot of material was culled, mostly by virtue of not being copied. This is a world before the printing press, so if a text wasn't copied, it was going to turn to dust and be forgotten. One of the key factors in deciding what was copied and what made the cut to be part of the New Testament was the match with doctrine the text that made it fit with proto-Orthodox theology. Other factors contributed to a text being part of the canon. A big one was perceived antiquity and proximity to the apostles. One of the main ideologies of proto-Orthodox Christianity was the idea of apostolic succession. The church leaders, in this case bishops, who were leading Christian communities, claimed to be part of a chain of tradition, literally a handing down, of teachings and authority from the earliest followers of Christ to the present. This claim to apostolic authenticity is complicated because certain groups judged by the proto-orthodox to be heretical did claim this kind of heritage for themselves too. For example, the first person to make a canon list, Marcion, claimed St. Paul in his lineage. 
he really focused on Paul's doctrines and edited the New Testament in such a way as to really beef up the Pauline perspective. The way the Proto-Orthodox dealt with this was to claim all of the apostolic authorities for themselves. Therefore, if your community was most committed to one apostolic father and one gospel, the move was to accuse that community of being insufficiently versed in the full scope of sacred revelation. And it was this blinkered perspective that was fueling your heresy. A third factor was popularity over a broad geographical swath. This seems to be sort of a consensus-driven approach to recognizing divine inspiration and legitimate belonging in the biblical canon. At the same time, this was a long, messy process. We discussed last episode how long it took for revelation to be accepted in Eastern Orthodoxy. Another example is the letter to the Hebrews in the West. So what this means is that a lot of texts get left out of the biblical canon. Some of them because of obvious doctrinal divergences from the proto-Orthodox perspective, Others because their provenance is judged to be flimsy, fraudulent, or insufficiently ancient. The 4th century church historian Eusebius also judged certain literary styles as being inauthentically apostolic. And one example he gives includes the text I'm going to be discussing today, the Acts of Andrew and Matthias in the City of the Cannibals. One scholar describes the style of this text as similar to sensationalistic Greco-Roman novels and ethnographies, that is, descriptions of a particular group of people and their culture. The other problem with this text for its canonicity probably lies with which groups it was popular with. Eusebius states that it is texts like the City of the Cannibals that were being championed by heretics, groups of Christians with different theological positions than the Proto-Orthodox. So when we're thinking about the canon, we always have to keep this power struggle in mind and this battle over doctrines and connections to ancient authorities. Dating a text also seems to be difficult because of some confusion as to whether it is part of a larger work. The oldest it could be seems to be from the 2nd century of the Common Era. Okay, so now I'm going to retell the acts of Andrew and Matthias in the City of the Cannibals. After Jesus ascends into heaven, the apostles are trying to decide where each of them is going to travel to spread the gospel. Matthias draws the wrong lot and has to go evangelize in the City of the Cannibals. You can sort of imagine this scene where he pulls this lot and he's like, guys, are you serious? The cannibal city? That's where you're sending me? Everyone else just sort of glances down awkwardly and is grateful that their, their lot doesn't, doesn't say that. Cannibal city is the place we've all been waiting for to get a hip coffee shop, to start gentrifying. And maybe, maybe Matthias is going to be the guy to, to kickstart that whole cultural change. One of the names that pops up when scholars are trying to figure out the identity of this city is Myrmandonia, a mythical settlement said to be on the coast of the Black Sea or elsewhere in Central Asia. According to Greek myth, this was a city of ants, which Zeus turned into a city of human beings. So these ants look like humans, but continue to behave as ants do. In some variants of the legend, this is all for the good because they are organized and democratic and they collaborate. In other variants, it doesn't go so well, with the ant people becoming imperialistic, monstrously strong, and perhaps inclined to eat captured human prey. Also in the legends, the city is organized around a giant oven that resembles the opening at the top of an anthill. And this is key for later on in the story. So Matthias gets there, and his welcome like all the rest who ventured to Mirandonia, is to have his eyes gouged out and then to be hauled off to prison. 
the jailers give him some bad drug and put him out to pasture to literally eat grass so he'll fatten up. You know, grass is great for that kind of thing. This really cements the idea that these humans are livestock. And this reminds me of the novel and the film Under the Skin, in which humans are treated as game or livestock and referred to by the alien hunter as vadison, sort of like venison. Shortly thereafter, Matthias's eyesight, and presumably his eyes, are restored by a miraculous Jesus-like apparition. Matthias is tricky and naturally wants to avoid having these eyes removed again, so he hides this restoration by keeping his eyes shut around the cannibal jailers. They attach a ticket to his right hand, and it's basically like the ticket you get at the deli counter, but this one lets them know when the 30 days of fattening are up so that they can eat him. So even with his eyesight, Matthias still has a huge problem, clearly. Cut to the disciple, Andrew. Jesus appears before him and orders him to off to assist Matthias. He's going to command the horns of the wind to move a boat miraculously placed to assist Andrew. But that's not all that's miraculous about this. The story tells us that Jesus and his crew of angels are going undercover, and Jesus is the pilot and the angels are the crew of this boat. Of course, Andrew doesn't recognize them. Andrew also has along his own crew of disciples. Guess what? By chance, this boat is also heading to the city of the cannibals. What a coincidence. Crypto sailor Jesus starts quizzing Andrew, putting him through his evangelical paces. One of the key points of their conversation is this wild story of Jesus going into the temple of Jerusalem with the disciples and conversing with a stone statue of a sphinx which, according to Jesus' own words, is the earthly manifestation of the cherubim or seraphim, that is to say, angels. And the statue starts to obey his commands. Then Jesus has the sphinx fly to the graves of the twelve patriarchs to go and fetch three of the patriarchs of the patriarchs, that is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so that they can come and explain to the high priests in Jerusalem that Jesus is God, etc., etc. And so this happens, but of course... Even with these star witnesses, no persuasion takes place. File this story under, we tried and tried, but they just weren't being reasonable. This is not an uncommon Christian pose vis-a-vis Judaism, and I think this fantasy of resurrecting the three patriarchs to come say, yeah, Jesus equals God, guys, really brings home how much of this is done in bad faith. After all, the storytelling, Jesus lets Andrew not off to sleep, and has his crew of angels place the disciples right outside the city of the cannibals. Andrew and his followers are in for a surprise when they wake up and find themselves waiting at the door like some cannibal takeout. Then Jesus appears as a talking baby to whom Andrew apologizes for not having recognized him in the first place. The baby tells him that his mission to rescue Matthias is going to be very painful, but he won't die, and some here will even learn the faith as a result. Sounds great, boss. Anything you say. When Andrew finds the prison, he sees seven guards, diligently keeping watch over the prisoners. He starts praying, and then these guards fall down and die. Then he makes the sign of the cross, and the gates of the prison swing wide open. He finds Matthias blissed out, singing psalms like Paul and Silas in prison in the Acts of the Apostles. And Andrew's like, WTF, you're about to be sliced up on the Myrmidonians deli counter, and you're singing. Matthias responds by quoting from the Gospel of Matthew, I will send you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. No one expected that to be taken so literally, but Jesus had other plans. 
Matthias has been in prison for 27 days, and Andrew has arrived just in the nick of time. Just then, Andrew notices the rest of the prisoners with their eyes gouged out, stoned out of their minds, and eating grass as human livestock. He gets really upset, as would be natural in the face of something so horrible. He starts yelling at the devil for the suffering he's brought upon the human race. This is the devil's first cameo here, and he's, he's not really even present, he's just mentioned. Andrew sees this as the devil's attempt to provoke God into destroying humanity for how far gone they are. But Andrew assures the devil that this won't happen after the flood because God made a deal with Noah that such a thing wouldn't happen again. This is another one of those moments in the story when the reactions of the characters are so different from anything I can imagine as possible. Wouldn't you look at all the eyeless human livestock, save your breath, and whisper to Matthias that we better just get the hell out of here? But no, the devil deserves his due, which is a thorough tongue lashing, and it's something he won't forget. Andrew and Matthias start doing their supernatural praying, and this restores the sight and sanity to the hundreds of prisoners. Andrew tells them to go out and find a fig tree in the middle of the city. They're understandably sick of eating grass, and they're also understandably worried that this torture will be repeated if they're caught. But Andrew assures them that not even a dog will bark at them, which is another under-the-skin tie-in because the alien is sort of a giant dog in, in that novel and film. Then Andrew has Matthias and his own disciples beamed up into the clouds and set down to hang out with Peter on a mountaintop. Meanwhile, the city rulers of Irindonia are getting hungry and send out for the meat, for the Vodacin. But they find the jail to be empty, and there's just those seven dead guards lying there. So they order these unfortunate souls, the bodies of these unfortunate souls, to be prepared for cooking. The cannibals have this blood extracting machine to make the food prep less messy, and they set it to work, ready to process these bodies. There seems to be some error in the textual transmission, though. The preparation in question is referred to as killing these characters who are already dead. But Andrew is there waiting, and he's not going to let them mutilate these corpses. He feels some sort of sentimental attachment to them. I don't know. He turns the hands of those who are going to operate the machine to stone so that they can't butcher them. Then the city cops are sent out to round up some old people to be eaten instead. Sort of an interesting decision. We were being foiled by some supernatural agency, but we just need to get some more from the grocery store. Next in the in this moment, there's a scene where seven old men are chosen by lots to be processed by this death machine so that the Mirandonians can get their human flesh fix. Um, and one of the seven old men decides that he's going to trade his children off to replace him, to, to stand in his place. And the text makes a point of showing that he could have actually gotten away with just trading his son, but he throws his daughter in there too, to sweeten the deal. But Andrew repeats his hands of stone trick and interrupts the whole process. No one is getting butchered for the Mirandonian buffet today. At this moment of cannibal crisis, the devil makes his appearance, coming onto the stage in the guise of another old man, many ominous old men in this, this story, I don't know, and he tells the town rulers that they need to find and kill Andrew, or he will ban them from eating people henceforth. And that obviously, would be horrible. Andrew is able to hide from the mob, but Jesus appears and orders him to show himself. So he does, and it does not go well. The devil instigates the crowd to drag him through the streets by horse, on the back of a chariot, being dragged by a chariot, and then to throw him into prison 
in preparation for his ritual disembowelment and devouring by the crowd. Call it meat tenderization. After being tortured for another day, the devil has Andrew visited by seven demons who have been cast out of the neighboring temples through some sort of gospel ministry. They want to take their revenge on Andrew while he's locked up for the night and after, after he's gone through another day of being dragged around the streets in a chariot. They glory in the reversal of fortunes and promise to kill Andrew as John the Baptist and Jesus were killed. This is sort of an interesting threat, considering everything we've sort of learned up to this point in the podcast, that many schools of thought, including apparently St. Paul and John the Evangelist, view the violent killing of Jesus as precisely the moment when God beats the devil. But these guys didn't get that memo. Before they can do any mischief, the demons notice a seal on Jesus' forehead left by Jesus. Revelation alert. This is really some, some Book of Revelation imagery here. And it spooks them away. They flee knowing that they can't kill him, but they decide they can make fun of him, maybe even better. Andrew is upset, weeping as the demons are, are, are mocking him and, and mocking what a, what a failure he is and, and everything. And the devil disguises himself as Jesus in this moment and sort of replays the temptation in Matthew we talked about in episode one when the devil promises Jesus he will do all these powerful things if only he will worship him. And this is even trickier. It's, it's just... This, the devil appears as Jesus and offers to basically let him get out of jail free. But Andrew responds that this is not part of the real divine plan, which is, for me, was pretty startling. Uh, this level of discernment is probably the most fantastical part of the whole story. It seems like Jesus is there talking to you, and Jesus has appeared and talked to you at various moments in the story, but now you realize that this is probably not the real Jesus. Um... I don't know what sort of what sort of reservoirs of strength and wisdom would have equipped him in this situation to to make that distinction, but of course that's the whole point of a axe story is to show the sort of miraculous fortitude and power of those who are working for the gospel. Anyway, Andrew says no, and this sends the demons packing once more. Unfortunately, Andrew is in for another day of torture. This is the third day, if you're counting, and no. I don't think that is a coincidence. The sort of, on the third day he rose again sort of thing. Andrew gets desperate and asks Jesus if he has forsaken him, replaying Jesus' words from the Passion, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus assures Andrew that his word will be fulfilled, and then instructs him to gaze upon the piles of flesh and hair, gross, that have fallen to the ground during this torture. Question, is this supposed to be worse than what Jesus endured in the Passion? Suddenly, the gore starts sprouting a fruit tree. Andrew is comforted by this scene, question mark. But then, as soon as there's a smile on his face, he's thrown back into prison. The cannibals suspect he won't make it through the night, but at least they have this great new fruit tree. Jesus assures Andrew again that everything's going to work out, and then directs him toward a statue in the middle of the prison. Again, another strange moment with statues going wild in this story. The statue morphs into a fountain and starts spraying out acidic floods of water to consume the city and its inhabitants. This is some poetic justice for you. The statue in the middle of the prison that holds human beings so they can be eaten by other human beings is now spraying out acidic water that will consume the cannibals themselves. The acid water starts killing children and livestock, causes a panic, but the angels place a wall of flame around the city to trap anyone from escaping. They repent, the Mirandonians, and Andrew promises to build a church on the site of the death-dealing statue. 
They're just like whatever whatever force you work for, we're if we can't we can't beat them, we'll join them. Andrew also promises to the statue exclamation point that it will have a place in this new church. As he goes through the city, the water flees before his feet. It seems to be draining away into some abyss. Rain showers are being forecast in hell. Then the sinister old man who traded his kids away to be cannibalized appears begging for mercy. But Andrew is not willing to countenance this about face, and so he sends the old man and the executioners down into the abyss to follow the acid water. The rest of the city is freaked out. This is some rough prophetic justice. But everyone in the city who was killed by the acid water comes back to life. So everyone cheers up a bit, I guess. Then Andrew draws up a plan for the new church and starts having it built on the site of the prison containing, doubtless, the death-dealing statue. Following that, there are baptisms and catechisms, and this seems to me to be like this interesting sequence where you have to have the building before you can have the churchy pedagogy. Then Andrew seems to want to blow out of town really quickly in a hurry and something of a huff. But Jesus, the talking baby, intercepts him and commands him not to depart in anger, but to help the new church learn, and even to fish out those folks he led down into the abyss. Andrew stays for seven days, and presumably all that happens, but it's left a bit ambiguous. You might be wondering, how did this masterwork not make it into the Bible? And earlier on, I talked about a few factors, like perceptions of antiquity, popularity among particular groups as key factors. Theology is also important for the latter, and the thing that pops up for me is all of the animated, miracle-working statues in the text. At one point, statues are practically equated with angels. I wonder if this sparked concerns about idolatry among some ancient readers. There's also the question of the devil's role in this story, and how it seems to be part of this culture of idolatry and cruelty that early Christians honed in on as the core of their critique of the Roman status quo. Exoticizing ethnographies and novels based on people who supposedly practice this and that in far-off cities provides this raw data of human culture gone demonic. And we'll see this gesture repeated when we get to colonization of the Americas and the portrayal of indigenous religion in the 15th and 16th centuries. Next time, Travis introduces us to a concept, a place, and even a character with whom we are thus far little acquainted. Hell. In particular, he's going to be focusing on a dialogue between the devil and hell in the Gospel of Nicodemus. That will round out our first season of the podcast. We really appreciate everyone listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.